Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, it is good to gather with your saints today. Uh, my heart thinks of Psalm 133, which says how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, when they can gather together in the name of the Lord in spite of their various circumstances and, and thoughts and opinions and distractions and um, things that are going on in their lives and sufferings and successes that can gather together united by one thing. We gather together in the name of the Lord today and that is a good thing. That song goes on to say, there the Lord demands His blessing. <laughs> Goodness forevermore over the people. And I pray today that as we gather in Your name, unified in Your name, that You would command Your blessing over us in a special way. That we would meet with You today through Your powerful Holy Spirit. That we would hear from You today, Lord, through Your wonderful Word that speaks to us and exhorts us and encourages us and rebukes us where necessary. Give us hearts of faith to listen, to believe, to obey, and then to live it out in acts of love and worship. Lord, I love You. I believe your word is true. And I pray that it speaks now as it always does. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You can take your seats. Good morning, beloved church family. My name is Ross. And as always, it is just a joy and tremendous privilege to be able to share the word with you this morning. Matthew 16 and verse 13 is where we'll be jumping into the text today. We are continuing in our verse-by-verse -verse study in Matthew's gospel. And I'll say this, going through the scriptures slowly like this, verse-by-verse, line-by-line, is by far our favorite way of teaching the Bible. It isn't the only valid way, far from it, but we do like it the most. As the theologian and scholar Kanye said, I don't need no source on my word, right? We don't need any source on the word of God. And so friends, this morning, we're gonna get some meat from the word and it's gonna require some chewing. There's gonna be very little source, but I think it's gonna be good for our souls. It is a famous, and hotly debated text, but it is wonderful. And I hope and pray that God uses it to encourage our hearts today. We could use a bit of encouragement, couldn't we? That was my prayer this morning to the Spirit. Lord, let's just breathe courage into these people, please. I, I hope that it will revive some of our flailing faith. I hope that it will revive and restore a sense of unity amongst us today. And, and, and we need that in what is actually a key moment in the church and in society at large, especially in the US at the moment. So let's look at verse 13 of Matthew 16. And as uh, is the style that you've become accustomed to, we'll read a bit and then comment a bit and read a bit and comment a bit. And before you know it, uh, we will have landed the plane and it will be done. Verse 13 says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man 
is. Now let's just stop for a second. You knew we wouldn't get far until we had to pause and, and put this thing in context because context is so helpful for meaning and there's so much beauty actually in the setup of this text. We miss some of it when we don't know and understand the context. I just, I just want you to know though as well, before you feel guilty about the way that you read the Bible, it's okay if you don't know this stuff. And if you just read the text and enjoy what the Lord says, you can still read and enjoy the Bible. It's, it's incredible, the depths of the scriptures. It's like, it's like a, a very gradual slope into an ocean. You can play in the shallows and still enjoy it and still get life from it, or you can go wade out into the deep waters and still enjoy it and still get life. What a wonderful book the Bible is, God's book. And it speaks to us regardless of where we are in our lives, but I do find that the more you know, even the more exciting and the more joyful and the more helpful it gets. And so let's wade into some deep waters of context this morning. Jesus had been traveling through the traditionally Jewish areas for most of his ministry, proclaiming the truth about the kingdom of God, teaching people, healing them, saving them. But he had also been traveling quite a bit in Gentile regions, much to the bemusement of his followers and the religious leaders of the day. And what has he been doing in the Gentile regions? The same things, teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, restoring sight to the blind, telling them that the kingdom of God is at hand, showing us very clearly that this gospel was always going to be for all people from all nations. And, and here in Matthew, the text takes a dramatic turning point. Jesus is about to set his face towards Jerusalem. That'll happen in the text that we cover next week. He, he turns in his ministry and he's like, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer. Uh, but before he does that, he takes his disciples for a little break to Caesarea Philippi. It was kind of like a bougie holiday town of the day, right? It was kind of rebuilt and fancy and gentrified. It was up on this high plateau overlooking um, surrounding towns and, and with mountain views. And so it's an opportunity for them to go catch their breath. Now, a couple of quick things about this town though. It was mainly inhabited by Gentiles. Again, uh, secondly, it was as far north as you could go and still be in Israel. And so it's the, the furthest northern part that Jesus travels to before he makes his turn down south again to come back to Jerusalem. But it was a fascinating town and it's gonna set the stage. So try to stay with me, okay? Today's gonna be like a southwest flight. There's gonna be lots of standing in line, wondering what's going on. Then we're all gonna be piled into something and then we'll land in dramatic fashion and you won't really be sure where you are when you get out the other side, okay? It's gonna be a bit like that. We're gonna set the scene for a long time and then we'll land the plane very, very quickly. But this was a center point of false worship in that entire region of the world. It was famous for it. And Jesus takes his disciples there. And, and, and it's amazing to me that that's where he asks them, who do people say that I am? Surrounded by false worship of false gods. He's proving a point to them even where he asks them the question. This is the place where people had worshiped Baal for generations before. And all the practices that came with the worship of Baal. This was the, the city that had previously be called Panaeus because it was the center of, of worship for the Greek god Pan. Now, if you know anything about Greek mythology, then you're as boring and as interesting as me, um, but you will know that Pan was a very complex character. Worship of Pan gave, gave birth to the ideology, the worldview known as pantheism. 
which is the idea that creation is in fact divine, right? Which is a sure way to worship things instead of God, right? It's a false worship. But you'll also know that Pan was a narcissistic sort of mythical character who pursued pleasure at all costs, which led to all sorts of sordid practices in pursuit of that pleasure. Pan is also where we got pan pipes from, right? So pan's bad, right? Uh, we're also told from scholars that he's also where we got unstructured music from. In the Greek tradition, music was very structured. It was kept to note. Pan came along and introduced the world to jazz. And so if you're ever sitting at a jazz gig and there's a flute solo and you're wondering, who do I have to blame for this torture? Pan is who you have to blame for everything that is wrong with the world. He's also where we got the English word for panic because panic was, used to be diagnosed as a momentary sort of madness brought on by a sense of terror. And so friends, if you piece this all together, Pan led to some terrible things in the world. In fact, if you piece it all together, the early 2000s band Panic at the Disco definitely comes from Caesarea Philippi, all right? And from some false worship that we should turn from immediately. But you can understand the context. It's a confused one of people going, who do we worship? How do we worship? How does this take place? Is worship of creation the right way to do it? Is chaos the right way to do it? This panic that I'm feeling, where does this come from? How does worship play into that? What if I don't experience enough pleasure with my life? The city had also recently been redeveloped and expanded and renamed. And it was renamed by Philip the Tetrarch in order to honor Caesar. That's why he called it Caesarea Philippi. So he wanted to make sure his own name got in there as well. But when they renamed cities this way, what Philip was doing was he was saying, Augustus Caesar is God. And I am one of his favored adherents. Now come to this town and worship this man. This is the place in which Jesus sits his disciples down and this is the beautiful backdrop against which Peter will make the clearest declaration of Jesus' lordship over all things that we've seen in the gospel up until this point, which is in stark contrast to the statement that the town itself is making. The very place that for generations had believed that the gods were angry and capricious and demanding the lives of others, here gets a visitation from the God who will lay down his life for all. The very place that honored the idea that everything was divine, an idea that led to panic and chaos, here gets a visitation from the one who spoke everything into being, who sits and teaches in calm humility and patience. The very place where people claimed that a man was God, here gets a visitation from God in the form of a man, and most people miss this beautiful act of glorious insurrection on Jesus' part as he sits with his ragtag bunch of followers and receives the declaration that he was Lord, which meant that Caesar was not, and Pan was not, and Baal was not. It's a beautiful act of rebellion, you see it? All right, that helps us, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? So Jesus sets up the question, refers to himself as the son of man, which, which reads as a purely um, uh, humble title for us, but is actually a quoting of a messianic title from, from the book of Daniel. And he takes a quick survey from his disciples to see what they're hearing about his identity. I think Jesus in this moment is offering the disciples an opportunity to think it through. Hey, wrestle through the false views of me. I want you to work through this. They're sitting right in front of the city dedicated to placing their hope in a mortal man while missing the hope that comes from the son of man. And, and so Jesus asked them to think it through and to come to some conclusions themselves. And friends, maybe, maybe in this moment, in this upside down tumultuous moment in 2020, maybe Jesus is doing the same for many of us. Maybe he is beautifully and gently, but starkly and strongly setting the scene through the chaos around us of the fruits of the worship of man that we give into all the time. And he's saying, you see? You see what this leads to? And then asking, what do you think about me? Who do you think I am? What do people make of me? And the disciples that the answers, uh, the, the answers that the disciples gave him were, were, were great. They were, they were fantastic. Some say John the Baptist, they said. Now, if you know your Bible, you go like, that's impossible because he was beheaded. Well, where did this rumor come from? Well, we know from Matthew 14 that this is the broken conscience of Herod Antipas who thinks that John the Baptist has been resurrected from the dead. He oversaw his execution. And so this is a Lady Macbeth guilt-driven kind of moment where he goes, and he's come back, right? And he's come back to haunt me. Some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These public sentiments about what people think about Jesus teach us a lot. You know why? No one says, he's just a regular bloke. He's just a guy. That doesn't cross anyone's mind. They go, he's supernatural something. He's either John the Baptist resurrected from the dead or maybe Elijah or maybe Jeremiah. No one goes, he's just Jesus of Nazareth. Why? They've seen his life. They know there's something about him that demands an answer. They're just not sure what it is is they don't know what to do with him because they thought their Messiah was going to be a powerful earthly king who was gonna suppress their enemies and bring peace through force as David had done years before. And when they heard the teachings of Jesus, they saw his servant leadership, they saw his humility, they saw his gentleness. They were like, well, that can't be it. He can't be the Messiah. He must be a forerunner to the Messiah. He's somebody significant. We, we, we don't doubt that. And so some say, no, he's Elijah, because they knew that an Elijah-type figure had to come before the Messiah. We know from the scriptures, John the Baptist was that Elijah-type figure who came before Jesus. Some say Jeremiah. Why would they pick Jeremiah? Because they see Jesus suffer. And Jeremiah's the weeping prophet. He's the, 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 the prophet of lament. And so they see the suffering in the life of Jesus, and they go, Jeremiah makes sense. That could be him. Because our Messiah won't suffer. Our Messiah will dominate He'll crush, but Jeremiah, he suffered. Maybe that's him. And so friends, they don't know what to do with Jesus and we still don't know today. This question, if asked in culture and context today, would still yield very interesting answers. Who do people say that the son of man is? If you ask this question outside the church and inside the community of faith, you would get some fascinating answers. Some, though not many anymore, because history doesn't bear this argument up, would say that Jesus never existed, or certainly not near to the form that we have him recorded in today. I'm hearing this argument less and less as history proves the claims, actually, of the scriptures. 
but I've got a fascinating neighbor who I love, who I have these ongoing arguments or loving conversations with late into the evening, who says, oh no, the historical, the Jesus, you guys can't, that Jesus never existed. There might've been, might've been someone called Jesus of Nazareth, but he was nothing like the record show. And I'm like, well, how do you know? He's like, well, I saw this thing on History Channel and I read a book. I was like, I also read a book, right? Um, and so you've read a book, I've read a book. We have disputes over which one is authoritative, but that worldview is shrinking of people who say he didn't really exist. Some say he was primarily a political insurrectionist. And so if you watch the History Channel, you watch stories on Jesus' life, what they say is he's this revolutionary figure who was dramatically misunderstood and he was seeking to overthrow the cruelty of the Roman Empire and that's why he got executed, right? The problem with that again is the gospel testimonies that we have. He seems to live for so much more than that. But we still see many people today treating Jesus as a political tool for their own agendas and outcomes. Some say he was just a moral teacher or philosopher or perhaps even a prophet. Billions of people around the world today would say Jesus was one of the prophets, just not the Christ. They would say he was a good man with good teachings. You see his own words, if you read the scriptures, exclude him from being such. And then some, even Christians, would limit his identity they would, they would agree with what Peter's gonna say. Yes, he's the, he's the Christ, he's the son of the living God. But then the way they live in relation to him denounces through their actions some of his lordship over their lives. Many in the church today want Jesus as savior, but don't adhere to him as king. We wouldn't say this explicitly. We'd say, no, of course he's king. But it's given away, listen, friends, by our failing to adhere to his explicit teachings. Many want his love and gentleness and heart for the outcast, but not his radical call to holiness and purity. You know that Jesus sets the highest bar of personal holiness? And we go like, no, no, Jesus just gives us grace. He gives us grace beyond our wildest imaginations. And when he sets the bar, a bar for holiness, it's way above where anyone else had set it previously or since. Both of those things. Both of those things. Many want his claims of lordship over all. They're happy to try follow him into holiness, but they don't and won't adhere to his standards of neighbor love and enemy love. They'll pursue holiness, but when he says, love your enemy, they're like, ah, nah, I'm out. When he says the meek will inherit the earth, they're like, ah, we've got to, surely we're mistranslating meek. Maybe meek really means kind of domineering. Some even want to obey the great commission, but not the great commandment. Some love turning the tables in the temple. I want to follow Jesus and turn tables over, but don't want to live lives that look anything like the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> where the last are first and the first are last. Following Jesus means receiving him as savior and accept, accepting him as king, which means his teachings are right and true and ought to be adhered to and followed. Who do people say he is? Who do you say he is? Because that is where Jesus presses them. How about you? And what about you? What do you say of the Son of Man? Verse 16, Simon Peter. I love Peter. He's always first to speak. He opens his mouth mainly to change feet most of the time, right? But here he brings this moment of absolute clarity and Jesus is gonna say he gets it from the Father. 
So God breathes this into Peter's heart and he expresses it first. It's interesting because Jesus had asked, who do you say I am, plural, to the disciples? And I imagine there's lots of just awkward looking at the floor, right? Like in math class where you should know the answer and the teacher's like, you should know this. And everyone's like, okay. Well, now they do it on Zoom. They just mute screen. Um, uh, but, but here everyone's looking around, but Peter jumps in. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now everyone must be waiting to go like, is that right? I, I mean, that's... Is that right? I hope, Peter, is that right? I'm ready to either reject or go with Peter, um, depending on how Jesus reacts in this moment. And here's why we can't just say Jesus is a good teacher, because Peter calls him the son of God and messianic title. You're the one, the Christ, a definite article, the anointed one. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, it means Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. At which point the other disciples are like, yeah, I was also, I was also gonna say, I was gonna say what Peter said. Um, I agree 100%, cannot overstate my agreement um, with Peter enough. And he says to him this famous line, which the church has argued over for 2000 years. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a moment. There's so much going on in this little back and forth between Jesus and Peter. And it's the first time that Jesus explicitly refers to the idea of a church. The word that we have here is ecclesia, church. It means a gathering of God's called out ones. God's called out people gathered together in some way in a collective, the ecclesia, the church. And he says some remarkable things about what the church is. And so that's where I wanna land the plane today. That's what I wanna focus on, the promises that Jesus gives to the church. Uh, Let's summarize it in one main point and then I wanna break it down by examining this back and forth between Jesus and Peter. Here's the big idea. The church, the ecclesia, is built on Jesus, is built by Jesus. Jesus and is built for Jesus. It's on Jesus, it's by Jesus, and it's ultimately for Jesus. Let's look at those one at a time. Firstly, the church is built on Jesus, and more specifically, it is built on the clear declaration of the Lordship of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's declaration is astonishing and powerful, it would have been scandalous in the day. He's declaring without a doubt, you are the one. You're the Messiah, you're the King of Israel, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. This is explicit on the identity of Jesus. Peter leaves no wiggle room for interpretation and Jesus doesn't correct him, isn't that amazing? So he can't just be another moral teacher because then he would have gone, no, 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 Peter, you're getting carried away, mate. (laughs) You're equating me with God, you can't, do, you can't do that. What does Jesus say? Well done, you're correct. God the Father revealed this to you. This is who I am. Friends, this is still the way it happens today. God opens the hearts of, of people to the reality that Jesus is the Christ. It could be happening to you today. You know, preaching is the weirdest thing. I've heard people come to Christ in some of the strangest sermons ever, but it's because of this thing happening, this reality, God the Father sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts to open our hearts to the reality that Jesus is the Christ. You walk in not thinking he's the Christ, you're sitting there and you go like, he is the Christ, I don't understand, it has nothing to do with what this chap is saying, but he is the Christ, I believe it. And you walk out a new creation, that could be happening in your heart today. And listen, friends, 
in a tumultuous season for the church. This is the central claim on which the church is built. We will make many other claims, but none of them matter nearly as much as this one, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Just look at what Jesus said to Peter. He said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. What does that mean? There's been such hot debate over this. What is the rock that Jesus said he would build on? Well, in the Catholic tradition, Peter himself is the rock, which gives birth to the papacy, right? The idea that a pope is, is the, 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 the head of the church in the world, the, the rock on which Jesus builds the rest of the church. Now, while we do not deny the special place for Peter and his leadership in the early church, that is not where we in the Protestant tradition believe that, believe that Jesus was saying here. There's a real play on words happening in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do read a lot of Greek scholars, and there's this back and forth. Jesus uses two different words for rock. He says, you are Petros, little rock, right? And on this Petra, anyone remember the 90s Christian band? That's a deep cut throwback, right? You are Petra, no, okay, gosh. Uh, you are Petra, uh, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. You are a little rock, and on this massive rock, the truth of your declaration, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, on that, I will build my church. Otherwise, he would have used the same word, and he would have said, you are Petra, a big rock, Peter, and on you, I will build my church. He doesn't say that. He says, Peter, <laughs> and naming was so important in this culture, right? And so he gives Peter this nickname. <laughs> you are Little Rock. And Peter's like, oh, okay, Little, like Little Rock, Arkansas. He's like, no, no, not that little. Think bigger than that, right? Uh, think bigger than that. But you're just this little itty bitty rock. But your declaration that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, that is a big rock, Petra. And on that big rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, the church is built and stands and stays on the simple declaration made by groups of people who have nothing else in common but who together refuse to back down from this statement, Jesus is the Christ. That's the big rock that we are built on. That sure foundation of that statement. We don't stand on the small pebbles of human leadership or the tiny stones that make up the shifting sands of culture. We stand on this big rock of this declaration. Secondly, the church is built not just on, but by Jesus. And it's built specifically by the prevailing power of Jesus. Look what he says. I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus says, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail, shall not prevail against it. Two things here. Look at the power's source and look at the power's result. The power's source is that Jesus builds the church. Friends, it's simple today. Listen, Jesus builds the church. And of all the things he could have chosen to build in order to expand his kingdom here on earth, he builds a church, a gathering of his called out people, an ecclesia. He doesn't build a nation. He doesn't build a political party. He doesn't build a military force. He doesn't even build a podcast for people who like Jesus but are done with the church. He builds a church. And he builds it, which ought to give us tremendous comfort. 
That is why the church has survived through millennia, through persecution, through resistance, through war, and we've been on both sides of those wars, through famine, through sin after sin after sin in church leadership, and it just keeps going. He builds the church so nothing will stop it. I have spoken with so many people over the last few weeks who are dreadfully nervous for the future of the church. I am not. Why? Jesus builds it. He's got it. He always has. Even though we keep trying to think it's something that rests in our our hands. It's his. He has us and always will. Friends, what is Jesus currently doing in 2020? Someone asked me the other day, what is Jesus up to in 2020? You know what I know he's up to? Building his church. Refining his church on the big rock of this declaration. Stripping away all the other tiny little pebbles of our own beliefs and our ideologies and saying, no, you stand on this and you stand on this alone that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Don't be distracted by the rest. What's the result of that power? You can see you need some courage this morning. What's the result of that power? The result of that power is that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. How do you picture the principalities and powers advancing against us with massive tanks and helicopters coming to bombard the kingdom of God? That's not the image. That's not the word picture that Jesus gives us. You know how he pictures it? Trembling, putrid gates holding on for dear life going, oh my goodness, don't let the church get in here because our gates will never hold against the people of God who stand on the solid rock of Jesus' declaration that he is the Christ. These gates will never hold. What a promise. We settle for worldly power and then we panic when it gets taken away from us. Jesus says the church has spiritual power, so much so that the defense mechanisms of hell aren't able to withstand one thing, a group of people committed to living under the declaration that Jesus is the Christ and doing their best to obey him as they love one another. Hell cannot stand that. Cannot stand that. Third one, it's on Jesus, it's by Jesus, it's for Jesus. The church is built for the possession and purposes of Jesus. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. My church. Personal possession from Jesus. It's my church. It's precious to me. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And look at this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? He's still gonna make his way down to Jerusalem. Jesus says the church is his, belongs to him, but that he would give a whole lot of power to the church for the advance of his kingdom. Now, I don't have time today to get into all the arguments of what the the keys of the the kingdom of heaven might be and what it might look like to loose and bind things on earth. It is important to note that they are given to the church. The keys, this powerful set of keys is given to the ecclesia, to us collectively, not specifically to Christians individually. Uh, I like the summary that Dr. Tony Evans uh, made when he said that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are this, the divinely authorized resources that grant us authority and access to heaven's kingdom rule. Authority and access. Keys give you authority to open something and keys give you access to then go inside and make yourself at home. 
And right throughout scriptures, we see this authority and this access. The risen Christ, we're told in Revelation, has what? The keys to death and Hades in his hands. Satan thought he had them. And as Jesus walked out of the grave, he said, I'll take those, thank you very much, because I now have authority and I now have access even over dominion that you thought you ruled over. Friends, listen, listen, lift your heads. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us because we have the keys to heaven. (laughs) Imagine if the church believed this. We wouldn't be clambering for earthly power as desperately as we are now. We would be grabbing hold of the keys and binding and loosing as we make the sure and steady declaration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. These keys are what allow us to live out that declaration and to resist any principality or power that says anything else, anything that makes Christ less. Our dear friends, the church, the church is this precious thing built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his Lordship, built by the sustaining power and prevailing power of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom, built for the purposes of Jesus Christ and the advance of his great kingdom in this world. Okay, so what? How should we respond to that today? If I was sitting where you're sitting, you're like, well, that chap's clearly pretty excited about it. I'm not sure what the rest of us are supposed to do with this. Well, here's some things. You must answer the question for yourself today. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Is your heart prone to panic? Is your heart prone to thinking that everything's gone out of control? Or do you stand firm on the solid rock that says, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and you're building your church and the gates of hell won't prevail. Who do you say that he is? Secondly, what do you make of the church? What do you make of the church? If this is true of the church, of the ecclesia, are you engaging it in a way that reflects this? Will you commit to live your life under the kingship of Jesus and in unity with a local church, whether it's this one or another one, friends, pick one that helps you to stand on the solid rock and then don't leave. Don't leave over any of the small pebbles you see around, stand on the solid rock. Find a community of believers that helps you to declare you are the Christ and live life with them. Thirdly, be of good courage. Can we just lift our heads a bit? So much doom and gloom, and I get it. There's a lot of real suffering going on. But if you're part of Jesus' church, you're part of the most supernaturally powerful thing on the planet. You've got the keys. You've got the keys. And lastly, join in. Join in in the great work. Join us as we rattle those gates. (laughs) We're gonna do that this morning through song, through shared declarations and statements of faith, and then through our scattered mission into this needy city all over the place where God would send us, armed with the keys of heaven, ready to bind and loose in Jesus' name, standing sure and certain on the Petra, the solid rock, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, 
who is building his church. The gates of hell don't stand a chance. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that it will do what I cannot do today, which is speak into people's hearts and souls, not just their minds. I pray that you persuade us of its truth today. Remind us of its reality. Help us to respond to its implications. Please, God, where there are those this morning who have not said you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to your Son, Jesus, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would win them to do so this morning. If that's you, maybe you've even been around church for a long time, but you haven't lived with that singularity. You are the Christ, that statement of faith. Jesus, you're it, you're it. You can do that today. The scriptures tell us that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our minds that he is Lord, then we are saved. Do that. Tell him you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Maybe this morning you've given into a form of modern pantheism of sorts. You realize you've been worshiping the things of this world, giving them a place that is too high and has led to panic in your heart. Stop, come back to the solid rock, stand on it. Remember his lordship, remember his kindness, remember his grace, remember his power. Today, maybe someone is like, I just can't do church, it's just another thing in life. I just, and I've been hurt and leaders are bad and people betray me and it's full of hypocrites. I understand. But an ecclesia, a church, is the place in the world that you get to stand on the solid rock. Ask the Lord to show you where are you gonna participate in that great endeavor with other people. If you've been feeling the gates of hell encroaching, remember that as you stand with a church on this central claim, you're given the keys. You're given the keys. Be of good courage, church. Father God, give us courage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.